Welcome to Supreme Court Opinions. In this episode, you'll hear the court's opinion from Thompson v. Clark. In this case, the court considered this issue, must a plaintiff who seeks to bring a Section 1983 action alleging unreasonable seizure pursuant to legal process show that the criminal proceeding against him formally ended in a manner not inconsistent with his innocence, or that the proceeding ended in a manner that affirmatively indicates his innocence. The case was decided on April 4, 2022, in a 6-3 opinion in favor of Thompson. Justices Kavanaugh, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett were in the majority along with Chief Justice Roberts. The opinion of the court was written by Justice Kavanaugh. Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch were in the dissent. Justice Alito wrote an opinion for the dissent. The opinion is presented here in its entirety, but with citations omitted. If you would like to get future Supreme Court decisions, please subscribe. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh delivered the opinion of the court. Larry Thompson was charged and detained in state criminal proceedings, but the charges were dismissed before trial without any explanation by the prosecutor or judge. After the dismissal, Thompson alleged that the police officers who initiated the criminal proceedings had maliciously prosecuted him without probable cause. Thompson sued and sought money damages from those officers in federal court. As relevant here, he advanced a Fourth Amendment claim under 42 U.S.C. § 1983 for malicious prosecution. To maintain that Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983, a plaintiff such as Thompson must demonstrate, among other things, that he obtained a favorable termination of the underlying criminal prosecution. This case requires us to flesh out what a favorable termination entails. Does it suffice for a plaintiff to show that his criminal prosecution ended without a conviction? Or must the plaintiff also demonstrate that the prosecution ended with some affirmative indication of his innocence, such as an acquittal or a dismissal accompanied by a statement from the judge that the evidence was insufficient? We conclude as follows, to demonstrate a favorable termination of a criminal prosecution for purposes of the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution, a plaintiff need only show that his prosecution ended without a conviction. Thompson satisfied that requirement in this case. We therefore reverse the judgment of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Larry Thompson lived with his fiancée, now wife, and their newborn baby girl in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. In January 2014, Thompson's sister-in-law was also staying there. The sister-in-law apparently suffered from a mental illness. One day that January, the sister-in-law called 911 and claimed that Thompson was sexually abusing his one-week-old baby daughter. Two emergency medical technicians promptly responded. When the EMTs arrived at the family's apartment, Thompson asked the EMTs why they were there and denied that anyone had called 911. The EMTs left and informed the police of the situation. The EMTs and four police officers then returned to the apartment. When they arrived, Thompson told them that they could not come in without a warrant. The police officers nonetheless entered and, after a brief scuffle, handcuffed Thompson. The EMTs followed the officers into the apartment and examined the baby. After finding red marks on the baby's body, the EMTs took the baby to the hospital for evaluation. The marks turned out to be a case of diaper rash. The medical professionals found no signs of abuse. Meanwhile, the police officers arrested Thompson for resisting their entry into the apartment. Thompson was taken to a local hospital and then to jail. While Thompson was in custody, one of the police officers prepared and filed a criminal complaint charging Thompson with obstructing governmental administration and resisting arrest. Thompson remained in custody for two days. A judge then released him on his own recognizance. Before trial, the prosecution moved to dismiss the charges, and the trial judge in turn dismissed the case. 
the prosecutor did not explain why she sought to dismiss the charges, nor did the trial judge explain why he dismissed the case. After the criminal prosecution ended, Thompson brought suit for damages under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 against the police officers who had arrested and charged him. Thompson alleged several constitutional violations, including a Fourth Amendment claim for malicious prosecution. Thompson asserted that the officers maliciously prosecuted him and subjected him to an unlawful, illegal and excessive detention in violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. To prevail on that claim under Second Circuit precedent, Thompson had to show that his criminal prosecution ended not merely without a conviction, but also with some affirmative indication of his innocence. Thompson could not put forth any substantial evidence that would explain why the prosecutor had moved to dismiss the charges or why the trial court had dismissed the charges. Therefore, the district court ruled that Thompson's criminal case had not ended in a way that affirmatively indicated his innocence. The district court granted judgment to the defendant officers on that Fourth Amendment claim. Notably, the district court also opined that the relevant Second Circuit precedent can and should be changed to say that a favorable termination occurs so long as the prosecution ends without a conviction. On appeal, however, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit adhered to its precedent in Lanning and affirmed the dismissal of Thompson's Fourth Amendment claim. The courts of appeals have split over how to apply the favorable termination requirement of the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. In addition to the Second Circuit, some other courts of appeals have held that a favorable termination requires some affirmative indication of innocence. By contrast, the Eleventh Circuit has held that a favorable termination occurs so long as the criminal prosecution ends without a conviction. This court granted certiorari to resolve the split. In 1871, Congress passed and President Grant signed the Civil Rights Act of 1871. Section 1 of that act, now codified at 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, created a species of federal tort liability for individuals to sue state and local officers for deprivations of constitutional rights. In this case, Thompson sued several police officers under Section 1983, alleging that he was maliciously prosecuted without probable cause and that he was seized as a result. He brought a Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution, sometimes referred to as a claim for unreasonable seizure pursuant to legal process. This court's precedents recognize such a claim. And following this court's precedents, the district courts and courts of appeals have decided numerous cases involving Fourth Amendment claims under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. The narrow dispute in this case concerns one element of the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. To determine the elements of a constitutional claim under Section 1983, this court's practice is to first look to the elements of the most analogous tort as of 1871 when Section 1983 was enacted, so long as doing so is consistent with the values and purposes of the constitutional right at issue. Here, as most of the courts of appeals to consider the question have determined, the most analogous tort to this Fourth Amendment claim is malicious prosecution. That is because the gravamen of the Fourth Amendment claim for malicious prosecution, as this court has recognized it, is the wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause. And the wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause is likewise the gravamen of the tort of malicious prosecution. In American courts as of 1871, the malicious prosecution tort generally allowed recovery against an individual who had initiated or caused the initiation of criminal proceedings despite having no good reason to believe that criminal charges were justified by the facts and the law. The malicious prosecution tort protected against injury to the person, as connected with false imprisonment and against a wrong to character or reputation. American courts describe the elements of the malicious prosecution tort as follows. 1. The suit or proceeding was instituted without any probable cause. 2. 
The motive in instituting the suit was malicious, which was often defined in this context as without probable cause and for a purpose other than bringing the defendant to justice, and, three, the prosecution terminated in the acquittal or discharge of the accused. That third requirement, a favorable termination of the underlying criminal prosecution, is the focus of the party's dispute in this case. In accord with the elements of the malicious prosecution tort, a Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution requires the plaintiff to show a favorable termination of the underlying criminal case against him. The favorable termination requirement serves multiple purposes. 1. It avoids parallel litigation in civil and criminal proceedings over the issues of probable cause and guilt. 2. It precludes inconsistent civil and criminal judgments where a claimant could succeed in the tort action after having been convicted in the criminal case. And, 3. It prevents civil suits from being improperly used as collateral attacks on criminal proceedings. The parties to this case disagree about what a favorable termination entails. In particular, does it suffice for a plaintiff to show that his prosecution ended without a conviction? Or must the plaintiff also show that his prosecution ended with some affirmative indication of innocence, such as an acquittal or a dismissal accompanied by a statement from the judge that the evidence was insufficient? To resolve that disagreement, we must look to American malicious prosecution tort law as of 1871. In most American courts that had considered the question as of 1871, the favorable termination element of a malicious prosecution claim was satisfied so long as the prosecution ended without a conviction. As one influential New York decision explained, when the individual was convicted in the suit or proceeding complained of, he could not maintain an action for malicious prosecution. But when the individual was not convicted, the question is, whether the prosecution instituted by the defendant can be said to have been terminated, disposed of, or, as the books usually say, at an end. The technical prerequisite is only that the particular prosecution be disposed of in such a manner that it cannot be revived. On that point, American courts as of 1871 were largely in agreement. To take one example, the Supreme Court of Indiana ruled that a dismissal satisfied the favorable termination requirement because it marked an end to further proceedings against the defendant on the charges. Similarly, the Supreme Court of Tennessee concluded that a suit was proper when the prosecution was at an end. For that reason, a plaintiff could maintain a malicious prosecution claim when, for example, the prosecutor abandoned the criminal case or the court dismissed the case without providing a reason. Several courts explicitly added, moreover, that a favorable termination did not require an acquittal or a dismissal accompanied by some affirmative indication of innocence. In the words of one court, it is not to be understood, that an action, for a malicious prosecution, will not lie, unless the party has been acquitted by a jury on trial. On the contrary, a person may have his action after a bill rejected by the grand jury, or even where no bill has been preferred, if there is a final end of the prosecution, and the party discharged. The treatises of that era agreed that a favorable termination occurred so long as the prosecution ended without conviction. Cooley's tort law treatise stated, for example, that the reasonable rule seems to be, that the technical prerequisite is only that the particular prosecution be disposed of in such a manner that this cannot be revived, and the prosecutor, if he proceeds further, will be put to a new one. The parties to this case have identified only one court that required something more, such as an acquittal or a dismissal accompanied by some affirmative indication of innocence. In 1863, the Rhode Island Supreme Court concluded, with reluctance, that the termination must be such as to furnish prima facie evidence that the action was without foundation. But Rhode Island stood as an outlier on that question. The other American courts to consider the issue did not require some affirmative indication of innocence in order for a malicious prosecution tort claim to proceed. The court simply required that the prosecution ended in the defendant's favor. 
As Chief Judge Pryor explained in his comprehensive opinion for the 11th Circuit in Lasker the clear majority of American courts did not limit favorable terminations to those that suggested the accused's innocence. Against that body of precedent and historical practice, Respondent Clark contends that American courts as of 1871 had not settled on any particular favorable termination rule. But the cases and treatises that Respondent latches on to addressed a separate issue, not whether the prosecution had terminated in the defendant's favor, but whether the prosecution had terminated at all. In particular, courts divided over whether a prosecutor's dismissal without discharge by a judge in fact terminated a prosecution. Some courts concluded that a prosecution ended when the prosecutor dismissed the case, even if the court had not yet taken action. Other courts said that a prosecution did not end until a judge discharged, or formally released, the defendant from the case. But those cases did not purport to alter the basic favorable termination principle, namely, that a malicious prosecution claim could proceed when the prosecution terminated without a conviction. Respondent also seizes on a comment in the American Law Institute's 1976 Second Restatement of Torts, as have most of the courts of appeals that have sided with respondents' position on this issue. The comment in the Second Restatement opined that, for purposes of a malicious prosecution claim, a criminal case terminates in favor of the accused when the prosecution ends in a way as to indicate the innocence of the accused. But respondents' reliance on the 1976 restatement is flawed because the restatement did not purport to describe the consensus of American law as of 1871, at least on that question. The status of American law as of 1871 is the relevant inquiry for our purposes. And in the overwhelming majority of American jurisdictions that had considered the issue as of 1871, a plaintiff alleging malicious prosecution did not need to show that his prosecution had ended with some affirmative indication of innocence. Because the American tort law consensus as of 1871 did not require a plaintiff in a malicious prosecution suit to show that his prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of innocence, we similarly construe the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. Doing so is consistent, moreover, with the values and purposes of the Fourth Amendment. The question of whether a criminal defendant was wrongly charged does not logically depend on whether the prosecutor or court explained why the prosecution was dismissed and the individual's ability to seek redress for a wrongful prosecution cannot reasonably turn on the fortuity of whether the prosecutor or court happened to explain why the charges were dismissed. In addition, requiring the plaintiff to show that his prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of innocence would paradoxically foreclose a Section 1983 claim when the government's case was weaker and dismissed without explanation before trial, but allow a claim when the government's evidence was substantial enough to proceed to trial. That would make little sense. Finally, Requiring a plaintiff to show that his prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of innocence is not necessary to protect officers from unwarranted civil suits. Among other things, officers are still protected by the requirement that the plaintiff show the absence of probable cause and by qualified immunity. In sum, we hold that a Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution does not require the plaintiff to show that the criminal prosecution ended with some affirmative indication of innocence. A plaintiff need only show that the criminal prosecution ended without a conviction. Thompson has satisfied that requirement here. We express no view, however, on additional questions that may be relevant on remand, including whether Thompson was ever seized as a result of the alleged malicious prosecution, whether he was charged without probable cause, and whether respondent is entitled to qualified immunity. On remand, the Second Circuit or the District Court as appropriate may consider those and other pertinent questions. We reverse the judgment of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. Justice Alito, with whom Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch join, dissenting. 
Homer described the mythical chimera as a grim monster made of all lion in front, all snake behind, all goat between. Today, the court creates a chimera of a constitutional tort by stitching together elements taken from two very different claims, a Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure claim and a common law malicious prosecution claim. The court justifies this creation on the ground that malicious prosecution is the common law tort that is most analogous to an unreasonable seizure claim. And because a common law malicious prosecution claim demanded proof of a favorable termination, the court holds that its new creation includes that element. But this court has never held that the Fourth Amendment houses a malicious prosecution claim, and the court defends its analogy with just two sentences of independent analysis and a reference to a body of lower court cases. I cannot agree with that approach. The court's independent analysis of this important question is far too cursory, and its reliance on lower court cases is particularly ill-advised here because that body of case law appears to have been heavily influenced by a mistaken reading of the plurality opinion in Albright v. Oliver. What the court has done is to recognize a novel hybrid claim of uncertain scope that has no basis in the Constitution and is almost certain to lead to confusion. The court asserts that malicious prosecution is the common law tort that is most analogous to petitioner's Fourth Amendment claim, but in fact the Fourth Amendment and malicious prosecution have almost nothing in common. The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And a Fourth Amendment claim based on an unreasonable seizure has two indispensable elements. One, there must have been a seizure, i.e., an arrest or some other use of physical force or a show of authority that in some way restrains the liberty of a person, and, two, the seizure must have been unreasonable, which means, in the case of a full-blown arrest, that the officers making the arrest must have lacked probable cause. Malicious prosecution, on the other hand, requires proof that, one, the suit or proceeding was instituted without any probable cause, two, the motive in instituting the suit was malicious, and, three, the prosecution terminated in the acquittal or discharge of the accused. A comparison of the elements of the malicious prosecution tort with the elements of a Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure claim shows that there is no overlap. That is, a plaintiff suing for unreasonable seizure need not prove any of the elements of common law malicious prosecution, and a plaintiff suing for common law malicious prosecution need not prove any of the elements required to establish an unreasonable seizure. Start with the elements of an unreasonable seizure claim. Such a claim does not require proof that there was a prosecution i.e., a criminal proceeding that is initiated by the filing of charges in the form of a criminal complaint, information, or indictment, while a malicious prosecution claim obviously requires a prosecution. A person who is arrested without probable cause may have a viable unreasonable seizure claim even if he or she is released before any charges are filed. An unreasonable seizure claim also does not require malice. The court has almost uniformly rejected invitations to probe subjective intent in Fourth Amendment cases. If a law enforcement officer makes an arrest without probable cause, the arrest is unreasonable and therefore unconstitutional even if the officer harbors no ill will for the arrestee. Likewise, if an officer makes an arrest with probable cause, there is no Fourth Amendment violation regardless of the actual motivations of the individual officers involved. Finally, the validity of an unreasonable seizure claim is not dependent on the outcome of any prosecution that happens to follow a seizure. A person who is arrested without probable cause but then convicted based on evidence discovered after the arrest is not barred from recovering simply because he or she cannot show a favorable termination to the proceeding. Thus, an unreasonable seizure claim may be shown without proving any of the elements of a common law malicious prosecution claim. Turning now to the elements of malicious prosecution, we see that all of those may be established without proving either of the two elements that the constitutional text and our precedents require in order to establish an unreasonable seizure. First, the tort of malicious prosecution does not require a seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. 
there are cases in which defendants charged with non-violent crimes agree to appear for arraignment and are then released pending trial on their own recognizance. These defendants are prosecuted, and they may bring a common law suit for malicious prosecution if the other elements of that tort can be shown, but they are not seized. The term seizure would have to be given a novel and extravagant interpretation in order to reach a defendant awaiting trial on his own recognizance or one who simply receives a summons to appear at trial. Second, since a malicious prosecution claim does not require a seizure, it obviously does not require proof that the person bringing suit was seized without probable cause. The claim does demand proof that the person bringing suit was prosecuted without probable cause, but probable cause at the time of arrest is a different question from probable cause at the time at which a prosecution is initiated. In light of the differences between these two claims, it is apparent that a Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure claim is not analogous to a claim for malicious prosecution. Much more analogous are the common law torts of false arrest and false imprisonment, which protect against every confinement of the person, including one affected by forcibly detaining someone in the public streets. The court does not make a serious effort to justify its analogy between unreasonable seizure and malicious prosecution. Instead, the court largely relies on the fact that most of the courts of appeals to consider the question have drawn that analogy, but the court ignores contrary lower court authority. But in any event, we should not decide this important question without independent analysis, and the court's own cursory analysis is erroneous. The court claims that the gravamen of petitioner's Fourth Amendment claim is the same as that of a malicious prosecution claim, the wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause. But what the court describes is not a Fourth Amendment violation at all. As explained, that amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures not the unreasonable initiation of charges. In fact, the specific provisions of the Bill of Rights neither impose a standard for the initiation of a prosecution nor require a pretrial hearing to weigh evidence according to a given standard. The court also says that the initiation of charges must be wrongful, but it is not clear what that means. If that term simply refers to the lack of probable cause, then the court has failed to capture the gravamen of malicious prosecution because that tort requires not just that the defendant initiated charges without probable cause but also, as the name of the tort suggests, that this was done with malice. If, on the other hand, the court uses the term wrongful to require malice, then the claim it has endorsed is even more incompatible with the Fourth Amendment, which almost always imposes a purely objective standard. The court's recognition of a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim has no basis in our precedents. The court relies on certain lower court decisions that accepted the strange concept of a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim, but that line of cases developed in large part because of a misunderstanding of the tersely worded plurality opinion in Albright. Instead of simply accepting that misreading, we should explain what Albright actually decided and what the plurality said. In that case, Kevin Albright was arrested and bound over for trial without probable cause. The prosecution was dismissed before trial, and Albright then sued under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. The district court dismissed his suit, the Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal, and when the case was argued in this court, the only claim that Albright pressed was that his prosecution without probable cause violated substantive due process. He did not advance either a Fourth Amendment claim or a malicious prosecution claim. This court affirmed the dismissal of Albright's substantive due process claim, and while no opinion gained majority approval, both the four justices who joined the plurality opinion and the three justices who concurred in the judgment agreed that substantive due process does not include the right to be free from prosecution without probable cause. That is all that Albright actually decided. The terse plurality opinion did make comments about the Fourth Amendment and malicious prosecution, and those comments have led to confusion in the lower courts. But a careful reading of the plurality opinion shows that it in no way suggested that the Fourth Amendment protects against malicious prosecution. When the plurality commented on the Fourth Amendment, 
it was addressing Albright's prosecution without probable cause claim, not malicious prosecution. And in connection with the prosecution without probable cause claim, the plurality made the following two points. First, the plurality noted that where a particular amendment provides an explicit textual source of constitutional protection against a particular sort of government behavior, that amendment, not the more generalized notion of substantive due process, must be the guide for analyzing the claims. Second, the plurality observed that the Fourth Amendment is the constitutional provision that deals with pretrial deprivations of liberty. What this discussion suggested was that if any provision of the Constitution provided a home for Albright's prosecution without probable cause claim, the Fourth Amendment was a better bet than the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause. But the plurality did not conclude or even suggest that a prosecution without probable cause claim could be brought under the Fourth Amendment. Indeed, the plurality expressly reiterated that the accused is not entitled to judicial oversight or review of the decision to prosecute, suggesting instead that the harm to Albright, if any, was that he was not merely charged but also submitted himself to arrest. As for malicious prosecution, the plurality did not even hint that such a claim could be brought under the Fourth Amendment. The plurality's only two references to malicious prosecution appeared in the portion of the opinion that set out what had occurred in the lower courts. Footnote 3 recounted that Albright's complaint contained a common-law malicious prosecution claim but that this claim had been dismissed without prejudice and that this issue was not before the court. Footnote 4 then observed that there was an embarrassing diversity of judicial opinion in the lower courts as to whether a malicious prosecution claim was actionable under Section 1983, and the footnote added that substantive due process did not furnish the constitutional peg on which to hang such a tort. But the plurality opinion did not suggest that the Fourth Amendment could provide such a peg, and neither did any other justice who concurred in the judgment. Manuel v. Joliet, also provides no support for a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim. There, Petitioner Elijah Manuel brought suit under the Fourth Amendment, alleging that he was arrested without probable cause and then held for seven weeks without probable cause after a judge ordered him detained. The court reasoned that the Fourth Amendment prohibits government officials from detaining a person in the absence of probable cause. A violation of that prohibition, the court continued, may occur both before the formal onset of a criminal proceeding and when legal process itself goes wrong, when, for example, a judge's probable cause determination is predicated solely on a police officer's false statements. Accordingly, the court concluded that the plaintiff in that case could state a Fourth Amendment claim because the judge's order holding him for trial was not supported by probable cause. Although the majority asserts that Manuel authorized Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claims, Manuel did no such thing. That decision expressly declined to determine whether, and, if so, how, petitioner's Fourth Amendment claim should resemble the malicious prosecution tort. Indeed, the majority's analysis here is incompatible with the analysis in Manuel, where the gravamen of the wrong was that petitioner was detained, in the absence of probable cause. Manuel thus provides no support for the court's suggestion that the Fourth Amendment prohibits the initiation of charges without probable cause. Instead of clarifying the law regarding Section 1983 malicious prosecution claims, today's decision, I fear, will sow more confusion. The court endorses a Fourth Amendment claim for malicious prosecution that appears to have the following elements. 1. The defendant initiated charges against the plaintiff in a way that was wrongful and without probable cause. 2. The malicious prosecution resulted in a seizure of the plaintiff. And, 3. The prosecution must not have ended in conviction. This tort has no precedent in Fourth Amendment law. It is markedly different from the common law tort of malicious prosecution, and its dimensions are uncertain. First, it is not clear why this tort requires both a seizure and a prosecution. As noted, the two do not always go together, 
and if the aim is to permit the victims of malicious prosecution to sue under Section 1983, it is not clear why detention should be required. While pretrial detention certainly increases the harm inflicted by a malicious prosecution, such a prosecution can be very damaging even if the victim is never detained. The majority's only answer to the question why the claim requires a seizure is that it is housed in the Fourth Amendment, but that response begs the antecedent question whether the Fourth Amendment houses a malicious prosecution suit at all. Second, where the person bringing suit under Section 1983 is arrested and then prosecuted, it is not clear whether both the arrest and the prosecution must have been done without probable cause and without a legitimate law enforcement purpose. An arrest made without probable cause may be followed by a prosecution based on new evidence that clearly establishes probable cause. And by the same token, the evidence that establishes probable cause at the time of arrest may be thoroughly discredited at some point well before the termination of a prosecution. Third and most important, it is not clear what the court means when it says that the gravamen of the claim is wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause. Since the court refers repeatedly to malicious prosecution, one might think that this requires a guilty mental state, but in a footnote, the court raises the possibility that the constitutional tort it recognizes may require nothing more than the absence of probable cause. If that turns out to be so, it is hard to see even the slightest connection between the court's new tort and common law malicious prosecution. Malice is the hallmark of a malicious prosecution claim. Even if a prosecution is brought and maintained without probable cause, a malicious prosecution claim cannot succeed without proof of malice. And if the court's new tort has nothing to do with malicious prosecution, what possible reason can there be for borrowing that tort's favorable termination element? Instead of creating a new hybrid claim, we should simply hold that a malicious prosecution claim may not be brought under the Fourth Amendment. Such a holding would not leave a person in petitioner's situation without legal protection. Petitioner brought Fourth Amendment claims against respondents for false arrest, excessive force, and unlawful entry, but after trial a jury ruled against him on all those claims. Petitioner could have also sought relief under state law. New York law appears to recognize a malicious prosecution tort with an element very much like the favorable termination element that the court adopts today, but petitioner chose not to bring such a claim. For these reasons, I would affirm the judgment below, and I therefore respectfully dissent. Thanks for listening. This podcast is not affiliated with the United States Supreme Court or its staff in any way. If you would like to support my efforts to make Supreme Court opinions available to the public please go to the podcast's website. It's at anchor.fm slash scotus hyphen opinions slash support. Again, the website address is anchor.fm slash scotus hyphen opinions slash support. There you can also see other episodes and send a message to me, the podcast's creator. Thank you.